I'm going to invite all the children and young persons to join me for a few minutes if you want to move closer to the screen. Now, the camera cannot zoom in close enough to really show you what this is, and you might not even believe it, because when I showed this to Pastor Erin a little while ago, she didn't believe me either, but this is a coin with my head on it. If you look at this coin, it has my profile on it. I got to say, it looks pretty good too. Um, I make, I make a, good, a good coin. Um, I got this in Finland. My family was traveling in Finland uh, a few years ago where we have family and uh, my little girl's cousins live over in Finland and we were there and we went to a children's museum and they had this neat display where you could actually go and sit in a booth and it would scan your, your, your profile, your picture, like looking at the side of your face and then it would actually etch it onto a coin for you. And so on one side is my head and on the other side it has the name of the museum on, uh, that we got it from. And so this is a little souvenir from that. But I thought, how cool to have money with my head on it. I wish I were that important. Now today we're going to hear a story where um, Jesus is confronted by a couple of people and they want to know if they should give their money to the emperor, to the guy that's in control of everything. And the emperor says that he's really special because his picture is on all of the coins. And because his picture is on all the coins, it might seem like that the emperor is the most important person in the world. But you know what? Just because somebody's picture is on a coin or somebody has a lot of power or influence, that doesn't necessarily make them better than anyone else. The truth is that we are all created in the image of God. You are created in the image of God. And so you are already more special than all the money in the world, even if your face was printed on every bit of money, because you are God's precious child. And God loves you and asks you to love others as God loves you. So Anytime you're tempted to think, wouldn't it be really cool to be so powerful that I could have my head on some money? Or wouldn't it be nice if I could do whatever I wanted? Remember that God loves you so much that God also asks you to remember to love others and to be careful in all of the ways that you act and in all of the ways that you live so that maybe, just maybe, you can share God's love and share the gift of yourself that's already special, just as it is. Will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we give thanks that we are special just as we are. We may not have our faces on money. We may not be in control of everything. We may not be the coolest or the smartest or the fastest or something else that we wish we were. And yet, we are exactly the people you made us to be. We give thanks that you love us for that and help us love others for being exactly who they are. Thanks that you love us. Amen.
now that I've got my coin put away, uh, I can feel a little less important now for a few minutes here. But I'm not going to lie. I've been somewhat dreading this sermon for a while. (laughs) You see, when you don't preach every week like Pastor Carol does, you have the opportunity to look ahead and see what sermon is on the horizon. And early on, I realized that I was going to have to preach on this familiar story where Jesus is confronted by a couple of different groups that want to know something about paying taxes. But there's something more to their question. Underneath the obvious question is another one. Where do your loyalties lie? Jesus often finds himself in this predicament where different powers of this world are wanting him to give them allegiance or at least give them some fodder for their own agendas. Now I've wrestled with this a lot because as you know we are sort of in a similar predicament right now. We are in the midst of a hotly contested federal election at a time of global pandemic when there has been lots of social unrest and many things seem unsettled and uncertain. There are many powers in this world right now at work. Some that seem to be weighing down on us and others that are asking for our allegiance. And so I somewhat dreaded this sermon because I wondered what would I say about this story of Jesus caught in the midst of what amounts to a political argument. Yes, it has religious overtones, but it's a political question. And what do I do with this while we are in the middle of our own tricky political storm? But then I realized that Jesus has already pointed the way as he is wont to do. So I'm going to try to follow Jesus' lead here. I'm going to attempt to not fall into the trap any more than Jesus does. Today, I'm going to try to refuse to be drawn in by the powers that would vie for my allegiance and instead rest in the invitation that Jesus gives us to ponder about where our loyalties do and truly should lie. You see, much like we are in a season where we have parties vying for our allegiance or assent to their positions, that's what Jesus has going on here. If you feel caught in the fray between two competing parties, well, Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. Here Jesus is presented a question about allegiance to Rome by paying the tribute tax. And he's asked by the disciples of the Pharisees and also by the Herodians. Now these two parties are an unlikely pair. You see, the Herodians and the Pharisees have two very different ideas about what a good political outcome might be for their people. Neither one of them had much love for Rome or the Roman Empire because Rome had its thumb on the Jewish people and had its thumb on control of their land. 
And yet the Herodians and the Pharisees had two very different answers about what should happen. Now the Herodians maintained some regional political power by working with the Romans, by serving as vassals of the Roman state. It was their ultimate hope that there would come a time when Rome was no more and that the line of Herod could then assume what they saw as their rightful authority as the ruling class of the Jewish people. But for the time being, they had uncomfortably settled on working with the Romans. The Pharisees, on the other hand, longed for the departure of Rome and the reestablishment of the kingly line of David. They did not agree with the Herodians' claim to power, and they saw them as compromised by their alliance with Rome. Of course, the Pharisees themselves lived in a somewhat tenuous relationship with Rome, whereby they still maintained some religious authority within the context of Jewish life, so long as they didn't cause Rome too much trouble. So what did these disparate groups stand to gain by approaching Jesus together? Now, we're told that this is an attempt to trick Jesus, and that's probably too, true because we know Jesus was a pain in the side of a lot of religious leaders and political leaders. But I think both parties also see this as an opportunity to score a win for their side. I can't help but think this encounter has as much to do with their own power struggles as it does with their concerns about Jesus. Rather, Jesus was a convenient foil to prove that they were the ones with the better ideas. They had a simple expectation. Ask Jesus if a good Jewish person should pay the Roman tribute tax. Jesus would have to answer one way or another, yes or no. And truth be told, the tax was never a truly acceptable answer to say yes to in Jewish society. Neither the Herodians nor the Pharisees believed that paying the tax was the desirable thing to do. To pay the tribute tax that bore the image of the emperor gave credence to the emperor's claim of divine rule. And yet, depending on Jesus' answer, not only was there a chance to discredit Jesus, but also perhaps their opponents. You see, if Jesus says, do not pay the tribute tax... Well, the Pharisees have not only convinced Jesus to say something that might put him in trouble with Roman authorities, he has also strengthened their case against the Herodians that any collaboration with the Romans is a betrayal of Jewish loyalty to the one true God. But for the Herodians, if Jesus happens to say to pay the tax, they may have lost their opportunity to trap Jesus but at least they've still gained something politically. If a religious man like Jesus says pay the tribute tax, surely their collaboration with Rome can't be all that bad. And any critique that Jesus or his followers or any other religious zealots might have of the Herodians would be moot. The Herodians may collaborate with Rome, but ultimately they could claim they have the interests of their people in mind. Now, while I think it's always dangerous to make any direct parallels between biblical stories and our own lives, 
I can't help but notice how much this mirrors the ways we still think about the right exercise of religious and political power. I think many of us deeply desire to be about the things of God and to look out for the common good. But often we also have our eyes on the rightness of our own power as well. Always lurking in the background lies our desire to know that we have it figured out, that we have it right. Frankly, we want to know that we are the good ones. We want to be perceived as being on the right side. We render ourselves as the ones who are righteous. I don't use the word render by accident. I've been thinking a lot about that word. After being confronted by these questioners, Jesus calls them hypocrites, and then he asks them to produce the coin that's used to pay the tribute tax, which you'll notice somebody had one, so they have that tribute tax already. And as he looks at the coin, he asks them to describe whose image is on the coin, and they rightly say the emperor's. And then in the King James translation of this story that is so familiar to many of us, we hear Jesus say, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That language is familiar, render. It's just an old English way of saying to give. But in the English language, the word render can also be used to describe the act of giving artistic representation to something. For instance, Caesar's image was rendered onto the coin. To render can be to act creatively, to provide some kind of image or presentation or example that promotes an idea or perhaps invokes deep thought and introspection. In Jesus' answer to the Pharisees and the Herodians, Jesus refuses to give the expected yes or no answer. Rather, he gives a yes and. By answering this way, I think Jesus is rendering in word and disposition a more creative and fruitful example of how to engage with the powers of this world. By leaning into the yes and, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Jesus unveils the truth of his inquisitor's situation. They do not and they cannot completely stand outside of the world. There will always be earthly leaders, rulers, and powers asking for their allegiance. And when those powers are no longer coming from the outside, well, they will come from within. There's really no place of perfect righteousness on which the Pharisees or the Herodians can stand. Rather, they have been and continue to be in negotiations of power with one another and with the Romans. So yes, give to the emperor what is the emperor's, Jesus says. You're already doing that anyway. But this is why the and is so important. Because there's a danger of unveiling the truth that all powers, even the ones that we exercise, are compromised.
By rendering that fact obvious that all powers are imperfect in this world, it can leave us with no hope. It can render us fatalistic. We can end up feeling overwhelmed by power or indifferent to it. If some form of empire, either real or proverbial, will always have power, then how can we ever expect to see the things of God come to fruition? But here again, Jesus renders visible the path forward. Render unto God what is God's. Just as Jesus asked whose imprint was on the coin, so Jesus invites us to consider where is God's imprint. The answer given from the beginning of time is that God's imprint is on all creation. God's imprint is in the cosmos and on the face of the waters and on the contours of the land. God's imprint is on all the creatures that dwell upon the earth God's imprint is uniquely present in the face of humanity. We are all rendered in the image of God. Whether we're Herodians or Pharisees or even Romans, whether we are Democrats or Republicans or Independents or people that stand on the sidelines and watch, And if we are to render to God what is God's, two things become starkly obvious. Everything is already God's, and we already belong to God. To give loyalty to God is to live as if this is the truth. Now, from this encounter onward, Jesus rendered his life unto the things of God. He continued to demonstrate in word and deed the deep love of God and neighbor, which he articulated as the greatest commandment. And that's recorded just a little bit later in this chapter. We'll hear Pastor Carroll preach on it in a few weeks. He continued to challenge the presuppositions of both religious and political authorities, calling them to their responsibility to God and to their fellow human beings. And in the end, Jesus even rendered his very body unto the Roman Empire state as he was hung on the cross, the standard form of capital punishment for the Romans. In all of these instances, despite misunderstanding and opposition and even death, he lived as if God were already in control When Jesus was raised from the dead, it was the great vindication of his yes and way of living. Just when it appears that an empire really does control everything, God's presence and purposes always come roaring back to life. This is the portrait of life that Jesus rendered for us And we do well to pay close attention. Nothing about the way Jesus lived, died, or triumphed tells us that power is unimportant. Indeed, he lamented when his own people failed to honor the image of God in their dealings with one another, when they failed to be people of justice and of mercy. 
He gave radical attention, care, and healing to those left on the outside of strong and big earthly powers. And his death on the cross was a testament to the ugly and cruel raw political power of the Roman state. Jesus most certainly showed us that the exercise of earthly power has consequences. And that is the very reason. Time and again, he invited people to examine and re-examine who or what exactly they were living their lives for. Jesus' own life rendered in bold and beautiful colors that the act of living as if God's power of love and grace has already won, refines and conquers every other power. So today, I'm not going to tell you whether or not you should pay taxes or how much. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, although I might have some thoughts about that. I'm not going to tell you which particular ideas or schemes, or people you can count on to help you do right by God and your neighbors. If you decide that you must, then render unto the government. Render unto corporations. Render unto nonprofits. Render unto charities. Render unto Amazon. Render unto the NFL and NCAA football. Render unto Democrats, render unto Republicans, render unto the church, render unto any other earthly power that you can imagine. And, and, as you do so, render unto God what is God's. And not if, but when, you find that the other powers pale in comparison with God's power of love and grace then give thanks that God already reigns over all of creation. Every rock, river, hill, tree, animal, and person belongs to God. And then render yourself. Render yourself unto God so that God's love for all creation might pour forth in your words and your actions, refining every power you exercise and every allegiance of which you are a part. We are God's renderings. And if we allow God's spirit to work within us, our lives can become renderings of God's love and grace at work in the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.